Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. What is an atonement theory? Basically, atonement theology is theology that attempts to answer the question, how exactly does Jesus's death and resurrection make humanity right with God? This is easy to see by simply breaking down the word atonement, at-one-ment. How are humans made at one with God? Now, each major atonement theory answers that question in a different way. Perhaps you've been told that there's only one way to understand the atonement. There is only one true atonement theory. If that's the case, as we will hear later, then I can probably guess which theory was presented to you, and it's called penal substitutionary atonement. This is the dominant understanding in Baptist, Calvinist, and other Reformed circles, the idea that Christ takes the penalty on our behalf that was coming from God anyway. But penal substitutionary atonement is not the only atonement theory. And as we will hear, it's also only about 500 years old, which doesn't make it wrong, of course. But this episode will give us what I think is some very helpful context on all of the atonement theories. My guest today is Bonnie Christian, an author and journalist from Minnesota. Now, about 10 minutes or so into my chat with her, Bonnie will mention concentric circles like the Target logo, as a way of thinking about which beliefs in Christianity are up for debate 
and to what extent they should be. I've included a link to a visual representation of concentric circles. That's in the show notes if you'd find that helpful. Bonnie was gracious enough to do this interview while coming off of a pretty bad cold, so forgive her the occasional cough and throat clear. Here's my talk with Bonnie. So, Bonnie, I got to start off by gushing here. You wrote a book that I literally started writing a few years ago. Um, and you're like five years younger than me. So you are you finished the book, you published it, and you're younger. You are winning this matchup for sure. Well, I mean, <clears throat> my youth did give me the computer skills to hack into your, you know, files and steal the concept. So Oh, okay. So it's not you just know. that you are young and computer savvy, you actually are a <laughs> hacker. Okay, well that mm-hmm. makes more sense. But so this book is called A Flexible Faith. And it's just fantastic. It is like exactly a book I wish I had written. In your introduction, you try and motivate your reason for writing this book, which is basically sort of giving all the options. My book was going to be called It's Good to Have Options, which mm. is a, a Pedro the Lion lyric that may or may not have stuck once the editor got involved. But that was what I was planning on calling it. Uh, and so it's like these different options, basically these different positions on various theological questions from across the Christian spectrum, which is like almost sounds like it is ripped from the introduction to this podcast. They are so in line. It's kind of ridiculous. But you when you're motivating the book, you you mentioned one of your closest friends in college, this socialist vegan biology major. Can you tell us about her as a kind of a, a way of getting into why you why you think the way you do? We were, you know, one of those random pairings. We didn't know each other. didn't have much in common. But she'd been raised Catholic, like a pretty conservative Catholic context. And especially, you know, the, the Catholic Church accepts evolution. But in terms of what you're experiencing at your local, you know, parish, that doesn't you're not necessarily going to encounter that. And so... By the time she got to college, particularly as she was a biology major, obviously not really going for like the six-day creation in the last 10,000 years, and also starting to, to chafe up against some more conservative political positions that she associated with the Catholicism of her youth, she was having a lot of questions about, you know, can I stay Catholic? Like, can I do this with intellectual and spiritual integrity with these other commitments and interests that I have? And so for her, it, it, college turned out to be like a, a time where she was able to explore other branches of Christianity. And we had conversations ourselves and in our religion class and, you know, just with other people on campus. And she ended up remaining Catholic. And, but that's not always what happens, right? Like it's, it's sort of a, almost like a myth in evangelical Christianity, like sort of the God's not dead story of, the nice young Christian kid goes off to college and meets all these evil atheists and are they going to lose their faith? Probably. And I think that there's a reason that that, that myth exists and it's because it has some basis in reality. Like people do leave the faith around that age, but it doesn't necessarily have to end that way. And the, the answer, well, one answer at least an answer that I think is helpful is to encounter, to learn more about the church and learn more about other traditions within our faith and to learn more about your own tradition and maybe, you know, you, you don't necessarily stay in the same context like my friend did. Maybe you end up somewhere else, but maybe you stay 
within the church universal as opposed to just saying, well, I guess I can't do this anymore. Yeah, you have this amazing line. You say, if there's a version of Christianity someone can accept, why would we present them only with a version that they have to reject? Yeah, and to, to sort of like play devil's advocate against myself, I understand from, you know, sort of a pastoral perspective why the impulse might be if someone has questions to really double down on the familiar and say, no, you have to stick with this. Like, this is the right thing. You know, if, if you, you believe you're teaching the right thing, and of course you do, you don't want people to, to stray to the wrong thing. But to me, the, the question of can someone stay inside a church is far more important than can someone stay inside your church. Totally. Um, and so I would, you know, infinitely rather see a, a friend, you know, if I had someone from my church who says, you know, I just don't think I can be a Mennonite anymore. I would say, well, you know, let's talk about what the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Baptists are up to. We'd love for you to stay here. But, you know, it's far more important that you can keep your faith than that you stay with us. Totally. And people are leaving, right? So what does the research say, especially about younger Christians raised in American Protestantism, especially? Like, to what extent and why are they leaving the church? Yeah, so the the big thing, and this is always difficult to talk about in an audio format, um, the big thing is people becoming nuns, N-O-N. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not um, any, just any having, you know, There are not a whole lot of people becoming Catholic nuns. Not so many, no. And that might be like sort of a spiritual but not religious thing. Like it's not necessarily strident atheism, but it's no, no organized faith. I think a lot of it is maybe not specifically about concrete theological questions or disagreements. You know, like some of it's just, I moved to a new city and I never bothered to find a church. Or some of it's like, you know, I just never really felt connected to this community. But I think for a, a decent portion of people, it is that they have theological questions, questions that they can't find a, a satisfying answer in the, the congregation, the tradition that they know. And rather than exploring other congregations, other traditions, the, it's, it's often even presented you know, by people in your own church as, well, if you can't accept this, you can't accept Christianity, so right. you might as well just leave. And people do leave. Yeah, they do. And even when we get to these sort of non-explicitly theological reasons, you're saying like sort of sociological reasons, a new group of friends, you know, just didn't get in the habit of it. It's not like there are not theological things at play there. They're just unconscious. Are they in active rebellion? Okay, fine. If they're in active rebellion, they're going to rebel against anything. But like they certainly could have been given a different church culture, a different friend group culture. And if it had been improved then the chances of them just not bothering to find a church would, would go down. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's an extent to which, you know, if you have a, a theology of faith that you're really passionate about, as opposed to simply what you've been handed and you've never really thought about it very deeply, that is going to have more more sticking power. It is going to have more impact than, you know, just sort of a superficial thing that you picked up and now it's less convenient. So, eh, I'm going to sleep in. So, you know, you're putting this book together and you have to decide which topics you include. And, and the, the big thing you have to figure out is what are the non-negotiables for Christian unity that we don't need to have in a book of options because there really aren't options? And then what are the issues where it's worth calling attention to the options? So how did you figure out what that line would be? The way that I explain this in the, the introduction and a model that's been really helpful in my own life, and that I did not originate, I heard it from 
Greg Floyd, who wrote the foreword, is the idea of, of thinking of theological issues in terms of concentric circles, much like the Target logo, with the idea that we have the core, which is the person of Jesus Christ, and that's really that very, you know, obviously non-negotiable. Without that, you don't really have a, a faith at all. And then I would say you have a very small set in the next circle. You have a small set of beliefs that that anyone who, who calls themselves a Christian and sort of the historic Orthodox Church has always agreed on. The simple story of Christianity where if people said, you know, give me a, a rough idea real quick in like a minute of what Christianity is. It's the stuff you would say. I think the, the Apostles' Creed, which I use in, in the Flexible Faith, is a, a really good summary of that, especially just because of its age and broad acceptance. And it's it's brief. It's It's like a paragraph long. What I'm looking at in this book, or what I would say would be the next two concentric circles. One would be doctrine, and that's sort of the, the level of question that divides denominations, you know, the differences that separate, say, a Presbyterian and a Methodist. And then the final circle, the biggest one, would be matters of opinion, and these are things that can coexist within the same congregation even. So having that sort of ranking and understanding that some of these issues, while interesting and important and maybe super meaningful for some of us for whatever reason— are actually not at the core. They're not like issues of, does this make you a Christian or not? Does this make you a heretic or not? It makes it, I think, easier to talk about and to talk about in like a reasonable and healthy way. I think I probably went 20 plus years in church with no no idea that there were such a thing as like atonement theories and that there were different ones and that maybe you can't just combine them and mash them all up together. And that seems like a really big problem for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going to go through five of these theories and kind of we're going to have you explain them. We're going to talk about scripture that is commonly cited. We're going to talk about what you think are the benefits or the insufficiencies or drawbacks of each one. We want to apply them, like how do these show up in the real world? And then we're going to talk about which types of Christians have or would emphasize these different theories. So – Let's start with the first one, which is Christus Victor. This is the oldest one, right? Yeah. So this is what you find in sort of the first roughly thousand years of church history. And in the, the vast majority of like the, the very early theologians, this is what you'll find. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, that's very much a Christus Victor story. And the idea is essentially that, you know, humanity has betrayed God. We've sided with forces of evil against God. Unfortunately for us, it hasn't worked out so great. We, we're sort of at this point like enslaved to sin and death. We're, we're sinning, but we're also sinned against. We're suffering the suppression, and there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of it. And so God, the entirety of God, all three parts of the Trinity, stages this divine rescue mission where Jesus, God becomes incarnate in Christ, comes to earth, lives this this perfect life modeling for us, you know, what humanity can can be like and should be like in right relationship with God. And then the forces of evil, and you can talk about this, you know, specifically as Satan, as the devil or not, looks at the situation and says, oh, look, God is, you know, on earth in a human body. This is my chance. I'm going to kill him. Then my evil control will be complete. And the, the early theologians often talk about this as like God is sort of tricking Satan. Like God is almost a trickster figure where he traps Satan, he, he confuses Satan, and Satan really thinks he's going to get away with this. And so... In Narnia, um, the White Witch really thinks that by <clears throat> killing Aslan exactly. on the table, she has actually won. Yeah. Yes. And so 
Satan and, and to an extent humanity in that we've, you know, partnered with evil, kills Jesus, but surprise, unfortunately, for, for the devil, it doesn't stick. <laughs> and so by having overreached his authority, um, the, the devil sort of undoes himself and, and Jesus' death uh, demolishes this system of evil and oppression from the inside. And so then he rises victorious, having defeated Satan, defeated all evil and rescued humanity ransomed us back, made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. So something interesting there is that a lot of times when people are talking about penal substitutionary atonement, which is sort of the reformed Calvinist, most emphasized version, Baptist, they ask questions like, why did God kill Jesus or did God kill Jesus? God turns the bus to kill his own son instead of killing a million other sons or whatever. This is different. It's it's Satan killing God or it is the forces of evil killing God. Yeah, so the... God as a whole is very much acting of one mind in this, whereas in some of the other theories you sort of have, it sort of tends to pit God the Father against Jesus in a strange way and and sort of give them different characteristics. But here, God as a whole is on our side. Even though we've made ourselves God's enemy, God is willing to suffer on our behalf and to fight on our behalf so that we do not have to fight and to rescue us. And and it's God does not kill Jesus. God, God is not in favor of death. God is willing to to die rather than to kill others. And it's it's very much the entity that wants to kill is not God. Now, in terms of scripture used for this view, I definitely heard Romans 1 just came to mind of like Mm -hmm. Paul's sort of anthropology of sin in the world. You know, humans have free choice. God gave them over to their choice. There are consequences for that. As a result, they're sort of locked into these sinful cycles. Sin has control over them. In terms of the actual defeating of sin or the the subverting of sin's plan or the devil's plan, what types of scripture would people kind of point to? Definitely anything mentioning like ransom or rescue, like the Son of Man came yeah. to give his life as a ransom for many, that sort of thing. Mark, but yeah. also, also a lot of the more... Anything with more of a spiritual warfare aspect as well. Mm-hmm. The the I think it's in Romans the the part about where oh death is now thy sting that sort of thing. Anything about the defeat of the principalities and powers and Christ's victory. So Revelation then too right the lake of fire sort of the final moment of Satan the demons and death all being swallowed up. That very much fits easily into this as like the the final completion of the victory that is started with Jesus' life and death and resurrection. What do you see as the benefits of the Christus Victor model? So this, full disclosure, is is the view that I hold. And I think there are a few things. One, first and foremost, has to do with the depiction of the character of God in that refusal to sort of pit God the Father against Jesus and to, yeah. to describe God the Father as like this foreboding, law-obsessed, punishment-obsessed figure who, who really does want to kill you. Um, You're really kind of uh, kind of showing your hand here on, yeah. on later, Bonnie, <laughs> um, which is uh, fine. Uh, we, yeah. This show is all about locating ourselves <laughs> and being honest with that. Yeah. Another major advantage, I think, is the way that it really does grapple with our world is screwed up, and and like what kind of like a God that is actively working against that and actively seeking to to rescue us from that. Like that is a God worth giving our loyalty to and our allegiance to. And yeah, even just the, the take on death as a something that will be defeated, I think, is, is a, an encouragement that is not necessarily found in some of the, the other perspectives. 
So I want to combine asking you about maybe some insufficiencies or drawbacks with the liberation item. So Mm -hmm. as I was listening to you give the description, I was sitting here thinking, okay, I already know that I like Christus Victor as a model, but actually I don't like thinking of like an anthropomorphized Satan trying Mm. to trip. Like I don't, that sounds weird to me. Um, It's not that Satan for sure doesn't exist. I don't know that, but like, you know, 13 billion year universe and like billions of galaxies with billions of stars and like fell from heaven to earth. It's just weird. But then I started thinking, ah, but you know what I do really believe in is like evil in the Mm -hmm. world. And it strikes me that if we if we could make the enemy in our sort of our metaphysic here, like what what are we going to call the enemy? If we make that the forces of evil, the forces of scarcity Mm -hmm. of resources, the forces of selfishness and of hoarding and of destruction. Well, now all of a sudden we're talking about something that is very real and that is probably in all of the universe. It's a finite universe. Any planet on which there are resources, they will be finite. There is, there are no infinite resource planets anywhere in the universe. And as opposed to maybe some of the, satisfaction penal substitution theories where it's like some debt is owed well debt to who like why did god make a universe where there would be a debt that doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to make sense but if we're just going to say it's a universe with scarcity and evil and hoarding and selfishness and those forces have serious effects that we see all the time and like christ is the down payment on god's defeating of those forces that's really pretty appealing to me. And I don't feel like I'm doing weird mental gymnastics about these big metaphysical claims. Yeah, no, I mean, so like for me personally, I am fine with using the the more, and I say mythological not to suggest like that it's not true, but you know, it's a story, more mythological language talking about, you know, like Satan in a, in a specific sense like that, in part just because it's faster <laughs> to say. But, you got you know, a lot I, of chapters to cover in this book, but yeah, I get it. I, I don't think that you're outside the reign. Like Christus Victor has always been more of a series of motifs than like a single story. Like it's always had that room for variation. And I think there's totally room for a version of this that talks more about evil in structural forms, that talks about it less in terms of like a, a personal Satan, as long as you're still, you know, really getting at that idea of, where do our loyalties as humanity lie and and where, like in what sense have we sort of rejected God and embraced something else? I think you can say forces of evil in many ways, just as well as you can say, you know, the devil. Can you say anything else you'd like to say about the liberation theology version of this? You you put James Cone in your bibliography Mm -hmm. at the end of the chapter. There's also Gutierrez, the Latin American theologian, who have kind of taken this model and applied it to Really, colonialism and, and the kind of uh, the kind of systematic oppression that is somewhat unique to empires, either Roman that killed Jesus or Western European that started so much of the evil in our current day. This is actually what my master's thesis was on: was looking at like sort of the historical models of the atonement, and then what are different liberation and other contextual theologians doing with it today. The black liberation theologians like Cohn do I think tend to emphasize that rescue aspect, that idea of, you know, God in Christ opposes these evils and these oppressions that you're experiencing, evils of slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, police brutality, things like that. 
and part of the hope of the cross is that God will have victory over all of this. And then for the Latin American liberationists, you know, they're very much frequently talking about like God's solidarity with the oppressed and that identification with the poor in Christus Victor language, especially going back to some of the the early theologians we would call that recapitulation where God, this identification of God with humanity and God is like the head of humanity. And so his defeat of evil can be our defeat of evil and his triumph can be our triumph. And yeah, like I, I said, I think Chris's Victor has always had a lot of room for sort of developing these new motifs and responding to different contexts that people are finding themselves in. And so I think it totally makes sense that we would see these new developments like new ideas and new ways of looking at it in liberation theology. So I know it's your view and it sounds like it might be my view, uh, but (laughs) I'm going to withhold judgment for now. But are there any insufficiencies? Are there any drawbacks here? Is, Is there a part of Orthodox Christianity that is really important that is not included within Christus Victor? Off the top of my head, I would say perhaps one of the biggest difficulties is what we've already talked about, which, you know, for modern people accepting this story of like God has to come defeat the devil. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I think the the more penal substitution idea, which we'll talk about in a minute, where it's very legal based, that's, that's much easier for us to understand. And so I think there are ways in which sort of the, the end of Christendom and the way that our society has developed in the last hundred years or so has maybe made this easier to accept once again than it was before. But I think there are also ways in which it maybe doesn't come as naturally to us as, as a, a more legal and, and more transactional and less story-based theory might. What are some applications? Like, what's an example of a Christian going through her life thinking or acting in line with the Christus Victor model? It brings an emphasis on are we behaving like someone who has been rescued by God and someone who has rejected this loyalty to evil that we once had, the sort of gratitude of being rescued? It's almost political in a sense, right? Like, And, and this makes sense in the, the Narnia context. Like Edmund goes from being on the witch's side to being on Aslan's side, and that should make a difference. And it's it's sort of gets at the idea of your whole personal loyalty and allegiance in the way, almost like, like citizenship. And, and you see that language of like, we're citizens of heaven in the New Testament. And I think that can have a, a significant impact in how we think about and, and act in our faith. This is probably my biggest challenge, I think, to living out my faith as a, as a homeowner, you know, as like a 35-year-old guy with a job planning to have a family you know, thinking about grad school, it's so hard for me to believe that I can trust God with the finiteness of the world, the finiteness of resources. Will I have enough resources? And I do connect ensuring I have enough resources with certain kinds of violence, certain kinds of of evil. I know where my clothes are made. You know, I know what investment banks do with the interest on my home loan. And not all of that's bad, and we need jobs, and I'm I'm a fan of capitalism in general, circumscribed by compassionate laws. But at the same time, you know, am I going to take more so that someone else won't have enough? And I really struggle with that. Like, citizenship is good. Like, do I really believe I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and not a citizen of, you know, Washington, United States? So that's kind of how I thought about that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a challenge in it, I think, and a demand in it that you don't necessarily find with like the, you know, well, your legal case is all sorted out and you're good with God now. Hmm. And what kinds of Christians or denominations or you know, maybe a couple other famous thinkers or writers who emphasize this Christus Victor? Yeah. So in terms of the really early guys, you're going to find it in Irenaeus, Origen, pretty much anyone pre-Augustine is probably going to be doing this. More more recently, as we mentioned, C.S. Lewis. I don't, I don't think that he like exclusively um, thought about the atonement in this way, but yeah. certainly he very vividly depicted it in the Chronicles of Narnia. In terms of denominations, the Eastern Orthodox Church never really moved away from this, and, and I am not by any means an expert in Eastern Orthodoxy, but my understanding is that this is still their predominant atonement theory, and has been for two millennia. Like, I, I'm a Mennonite, and I would say this is the dominant view, certainly in our congregation, and I think you will find it perhaps more often among traditions that have that interest in peace and nonviolence, particularly because in this theory, God is not perpetrating violence on Jesus. Right. And so that that's a nice fit there. Yeah, God is allowing the violence to happen to God's self. Right. And then other than that, you know, I think I think there's an increased awareness of this perspective, an increased interest in sort of like understanding different views of the atonement in general. But for the most part, in terms of the Western Church, Protestants and Catholics, you're not going to find a lot of, you know, denominational level attachment to this theory. Yeah. We won't spend quite as much time on the next four. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we would be going to the two to three hour mark. But so next up on the list is the satisfaction theory of atonement. Bonnie, what is the satisfaction theory? So the satisfaction theory shows up around 1000, the year 1000, with a theologian named Anselm, who's a super big deal. He wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, which means why a God man or, you know, why did God have to become human? And his answer to that question was a, a very sharp break with sort of the previous 1,000 years, and very much based in the like feudal medieval society where he lived. And so his basic answer is that God's sort of job is to preserve the order of the universe. And in sinning, we have violated that order, and so God has to do something about it. But he's also operating, and someone's also operating from a very medieval idea of justice, where the sort of the punishment for an offense is not really so much dependent on what you did, but on your social status and the social status of your victim. Interesting. And so when God has been sinned against, there's not really anything that humans can do to make that right because our social status is so much lower than God. This is where you hear people say things like, well, how could it be okay to send people to hell? And then people will answer, well, you're not sinning against another person. You're sinning against an infinitely good and holy being. And so your sin is worth infinite punishment. That's kind exactly. of a, that yes. line. Yeah. And so this, and, and that's, this is how like courts worked in medieval times. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so like if you're a peasant who kills the king's deer, maybe you get executed. And if you're, you know, a great lord who kills the king's deer, maybe you pay a fine. Same deer, same crime, different punishment because it's different people. And wow. that seemed wow. all very appropriate back then. So only God is equal to God in social status, Anselm says. So God had to become a human to, you know, on humanity's behalf and yet still as God make up for the wrong we'd done and restore order to the universe. And so 
that's what God does. And the really interesting thing here is that Anselm like completely gets rid of the devil or, or any sort of like forces of evil as an obstacle to reconciliation. It's just God has this sort of like problem that he needs to fix. He needs to restore order and he figures out how to do it and he does it. Wow, that's interesting. So what kind of scriptures would Anselm have been appealing to and would people appeal to on this view? It's tricky because a lot of the language that he uses about order and and in the the medieval language, you tend to talk about honor as opposed to the word order, isn't really reflected in scripture because, of course, they didn't have a medieval worldview when scripture was written. Right. I think you tend to see a lot of the, the more legal language, you know, you might draw in Romans that sort of thing. It's a, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to make a clear-cut scriptural case for this. Certainly, you know, Anselm might disagree, but there's there's <laughs> less obvious sort of, you know, echoes of scripture because the, the whole framing and vocabulary is very much this feudal world. Yeah. So what do you think the benefits are of the satisfaction view? Mm. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, no, it's a, that's a tricky one. I think it made, it, there was a benefit when it, started in that it made a lot of sense to the people who were alive then. Hmm. Yeah. That's a benefit that I think hasn't really lasted as much. I I guess you could argue there's a benefit in that as much as the sort of idea of justice, depending on social rank, doesn't really make sense to us. Yeah, it is true that that we're not God's equal and, and remembering that is not a bad thing. Yeah pretty tepid response there for the benefits of satisfaction, Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can explain it fairly, I think, and hope, but actually like arguing for it is is another story. So what about the insufficiencies or the drawbacks? The the less robust accounting of evil, I think is a big one that I would point to. And this also begins sort of this, this separation between God, the father and Jesus it's not as much of a separation, I think, as you see in penal substitution, but, you know, God the Father is very committed to the order deal, and Jesus is willing to sort of help out humanity. And that that distinction, I think, creates some problems for how we think about God. And I guess if you accept the post-colonial critique of the way that Christianity spread throughout much of the world, it's kind of all mired up with... Paul and Peter talking about stations of life. And if you're a slave, you you probably shouldn't be so uppity. And, you know, it, it's this kind of hierarchical thing that is also central in those really problematic passages. And then it even gets like baked into how we're saved. You might just think, gosh, we there's a better way of thinking about this. Yeah, it, it definitely loses the sense of like God being on the side of humanity, even in our like self-caused depression, like even when we're, even when it's our own fault that our lives suck in Christmas Victor, God is still like saying, you know what, I'm going to get you out of this. Whereas here, it it does to some extent seem like God's big priority is, is maintaining order and keeping things as they should be. And humanity has created a problem in this that God has to fix. Satisfaction is the law and order candidate for atonement theory. <laughs> Okay, won't get too political there. This is obviously not one of the biggest ones anymore. It was probably very popular back then. I mean, in theory, this is still where Catholicism is. Oh, really? The Catholic Church is interesting, right? They, they're they so big. There's so many different people and strands of thought and intellectual traditions. But it has 
remained important in that tradition and also we'll get to, to penal substitution in a minute sort of provided the basis for that right. um, that theory and so in that sense remains influential sort of through its child theory and, uh, and as we were talking like you get a lot of the satisfaction of the language when when lay people who hold to penal substitutionary atonement are trying to describe it to other people right Sometimes I get to have really interesting conversations, and I had one last night with my buddy Josh Montoya, who is studying right now to be a therapist, and the issue that he is most interested in is spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse. We talked for almost an hour. He told me his story of spiritual trauma and how that has changed the way he thinks about the church, thinks about emotional health in the context of Christian faith. It was a fantastic conversation, and it is this week's patron-only bonus episode. So you can get these. They come out twice a month by going to patreon.com slash dancoke. There's a link in the show notes, or dancokewords.com, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. I was so into this conversation that I'm going to play a bunch of little clips here from it. But it was about an hour long, really interesting stuff. And I will have Josh back to talk more about this idea he is pursuing and is confused about as to whether or not emotionally healthy spiritual communities are actually possible in this world. Obviously, they are hard to come by, but might they be there if we know how to bring them about? Anyway, here is some of that conversation with Josh. I hope you dig it. The church that I went to be a part of, um, it was an internship where um, you weren't allowed to date, you weren't allowed to have a car, you weren't allowed to have a job. If I thought it was weird, I would have not done <laughs> You know, none of us right. are doing things that we right. think are weird most of the time. Um, once we identify that the things we're doing are weird, we usually make some effort to change them. Uh, but I was still, none of it was weird to me yet. Now, retroactively, I've been able to go back and see theologically so many things that I disagree with and are highly problematic, but there was a huge level of congruity between how they lived and what they t talked about and what was taught. Granted, control is what allowed there to be that congruity, but, um, and, and <laughs> yeah, a hell of a lot of fear. Is, the real world is messier than that much. Yes. But the, con but that congruence was incredibly attractive to me. Oh Yeah. It was ultimately what I, what he was saying, but not saying was you, you can leave the church. He was kind of saying you can leave your faith and you can leave all of this behind. Or if you want, if you still want to have anything, um, if you, and, and, and it was as if he was the arbiter of this, if you want to be a, a person with any integrity, you will stay and grind this out. And that's what I did in American Protestantism. Mostly nobody thought that pastors needed to think about the emotional health of themselves or their congregation or whatever. Is that, is that yeah, sort of the well, back? I mean, culturally it was basically what we have is truth. And if the truth makes you feel sad, bummer Th that that's like a perfect segue to what are we, you know, when we talk about abuse, when we talk about yeah. um, damage, when you talk about trauma, it's very, very important to, to identify that the, these words have nothing to do with the intention of the perpetrator. Um, 
we're talking about the effect that is had on the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a knowing perpetrator to experience abuse. A working definition of, of trauma for this conversation would be any experience that someone has had, physical or emotional, that has, that has taken on a trajectory-setting power for their life about which they currently feel powerless to, to correct. If there's an account correlated with my existence where I'm in the red. Yeah. Wow. And, and so that's, uh, that's not exactly a physically measurable symptom. No, but it's, it's a, phenomenological. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a feeling. Um, there tends to be, yeah. And this stuff comes, it comes out in language. It comes out in the way people talk about themselves. It comes out in the way that people, specifically the way people talk about God. And my question remains, is healthy Christian spiritual community possible? My experience and the experience that I've been exposed to has told me no. My faith tells me maybe. And that's why I keep asking the question, because I'm not content with the experience that has proven to me that it's not possible. I think it still might be um, because I believe the gospel, because I believe that that what this this mess of shit that we're all floating in is redeemable. Um, And that is the thing that actually moves me to critique it. Um, and to critique anything that stands up and says it's good or anything that stands up and anyone who wants to stand up and say, I'm a pastor or I'm a spiritual leader, or this is a church is going to get the, the highest level of scrutiny I can muster because I think that the real form of that really is hope, man. What a conversation with Josh besides these bonus episodes to a month. Uh, patrons also have access to a patron only Facebook discussion group that you have permission Facebook group or some whatever it's called and I moderate that and we talk through the episodes and through really whatever people are going through whatever they're questioning um, it's really an awesome resource there's a lot of people in there who have been digging into these questions for a long time so that's another perk of becoming a patron it starts at five dollars a month patreon.com slash dan coke k-o-c-h or you have permission pod.com Thank you guys for your support. Back to the show. Okay, let's move on. This is the one that I would have been disgusted by as a young evangelical for how flimsy and toothless it was. Moral exemplar atonement. <clears throat> <laughs> That is the flimsy toothless one. So yeah, maybe it still is. Yeah, yeah. So this comes around like around 1100, about 100 years after Anselm comes out with satisfaction theory, and basically the the guy that we tend to most think of as as developing it, Peter Abelard, he was not happy with satisfaction theory, but he also did not want to go back to Christus Victor, and so he comes up with a theory where he says. You know, essentially, God in Christ comes to earth to demonstrate the depth of his love for us and his willingness to even suffer and die this horrible death on our behalf. And so humanity, observing this great expression of love, is moved to want to be reconciled with God and then to want to live in a similar way of love following this moral example. 
that Christ has given us. And so, you know, that happens and then we can be moved to reconciliation. So moral exemplar is maybe a little bit soft of a term for that. I mean, it's that's kind of like a way of packaging that up neatly, but it it's actually saying something quite profound, which is like the God of the universe is willing to suffer at the hands of God's own creatures. Yes. Which is like a little bit more than like, he's a good moral teacher. It's not moral <laughs> teacher. It's different right, than that. Yeah. And it's, it's not as flimsy as it can be stereotyped to be. Yeah. Yeah. Actually kind of, I like a lot of that. I especially like it as I always kind of zoom out to the cosmological picture because I find it helpful. But if you think about the size of the universe and the, the sheer power of God, and then God self-reveals God's self to be the kind of being willing to suffer for love of God's creatures. I mean, that's, that's sort of the most important thing we believe about God. Yeah. So like personally, I find a lot appealing here as well, but I don't think I find it sufficient. Like, I don't think that it's wrong. I just don't think it's quite enough. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, And I think it also really fails to have much in the way of a meaningful, like, obstacle to reconciliation. Like, in theory, if this is all that's going on, couldn't we just notice how good God is without the whole death and all the terribleness? Yeah, interesting. Like, in theory... The the only obstacle is us and our unwillingness to reconcile. And so possibly we could have done that without the cross and the resurrection and, and the incarnation and all of that. Maybe this could be kind of a, um, you know, even a temporary sort of lily pad for people who are having problems with their faith, though. Maybe people coming out of Reformed or a Baptist tradition yeah. or something like that. I think it could be that. I think it also, to some extent, can be sort of something you hold alongside some of these right. other theories and, you know, something that you can draw on as well. We're going to get to this later, but you don't, of course, have to just pick one to the exclusion of all the others. I mean, there are some that I would say you can't combine, but there yeah. are some that you can. That you can, yeah. Yeah. Now, what about scripture for this moral exemplar? This is what God is like. You know, I think the the really obvious one would be God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the expression of God's love and and the revelation of God in Christ and, and also Christ as as our example and as the ideal human. Maybe could I add in some stuff from the Gospel of John? God is love and, mm-hmm. and Christ mm-hmm. as the logos, the the blueprint of creation. And John has in mind, of course, that Christ will die and rise again. So there's th- that's kind of in that logos, Johannine language as well. Yeah, I think it's it's very comfortable in that language even in the the epistles of John also. So we've already kind of talked about benefits and drawbacks. What about applications? Like how do we see people living out this atonement theory? Well, I don't know how often we do. It never has had the traction of the other ones. Right. But I think that there's a, in some ways similar to Chris's Victor, there is that sort of, you know, behavioral challenge or appeal of, of are you living in this love that's been demonstrated for you? Yeah, that makes sense. And then are there sort of denominations or streams of Christianity or or types of Christians who have emphasized this one sort of primarily? To my knowledge, it's never been picked up at a denominational level in the same way the others have. Yeah, I think of it as like, this is the theory for newly liberal Christians. 
<laughs> who have like you know embraced something like the Enlightenment, no. or they read some Paul Tillich, or they what they're like done with whatever the conservative thing they had before, and they can at least stick with moral exemplar Christ, and then maybe they might come and add in one or more of the other theories as they sort of reconstitute their faith. There's a lot I really like about it, and it's obviously mm-hmm. coming through that. It's a very central claim, really, to monotheism in general, that like there's a creator God and that God is like infinitely loving. Mm-hmm. And really, without that claim, you none of the other stuff matters in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I think it gets a lot right. I think it's just not quite enough. Sure. It's, on its, it's not the whole story, but it. Yeah, it but probably, it's an important part of the story. Yeah, it's it's kind of the foundation of the story, I think you might say. OK. Now we get to do the big one, the big one at least for probably more than any in in American Protestantism, penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, so this comes along around, you know, like 1500-ish. Guys like Calvin are developing this. And it's interesting because, like, this is the point where you sort of, like, the modern legal system has come to exist. Courts as we think of them now and laws as we think of them now. I love that historical context. That's so helpful. Yeah. And so... The sort of the predominant viewpoint before this would have been Anselm's satisfaction theory, but that doesn't really make sense at this point, right? Because you're no longer punishing people based on their social status. That is fascinating. You've got and the printing so- <laughs> press. You've got like sort of the beginnings of a, a more democratic idea of human nature. And so it doesn't make sense anymore. The Lord's not – the Lord should pay the same thing as the peasant. Exactly. And so – Thinking in like a, a modern court of law context, it's God the Father is the judge. He's typically depicted as, as pretty angry, pretty eager to punish. Like he he needs to vent his wrath. He is not cool with humanity. You know, Calvin says, don't look to God the Father for love at this stage. Like only look to Christ because God is not happy with you. So God the Father is the judge. Jesus is our defense attorney. God says, you know, the punishment is death. Jesus says, you know what? And and this really does not really reflect well on his like lawyer skills, right? Because he couldn't get us off. He had yeah. to just take the punishment. But Jesus says, I will take the punishment on their behalf. And so God, the Father says, okay. He vents his wrath on Jesus. And then because the punishment has been meted out, the wrath has been vented. Reconciliation is now possible. And we can be seen as justified because the punishment for our sin has been given, even though it was not to us. Okay, now before we go any further, Bonnie, it seems like we should just acknowledge the elephant in the room here. If you found this to be your primary atonement theory, number one, you probably wouldn't have written this book because you wouldn't be writing this book and you wouldn't be a Mennonite. You'd be blogging at Desiring God or the Gospel Coalition (laughs) or something like that. And look, I have a lot of Reformed friends I love deeply. It is a world, though, that takes its theology very seriously. It is. And would probably not be as interested in a four views on salvation type of a book. Well, and I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. If you're reformed, feel free no, to but email this me. Is, I mean, it's very much like it's often expressed as like penal substitution is the gospel. And so if you're not teaching that, you know, are you really orthodox? Probably not. Right. Sometimes people will say, I never actually heard the gospel until I went to a Baptist fill in the blank kind of a church. Right. So, okay, what scripture – now, there's a giant case that's made for penal substitutionary atonement within American Christianity. What scriptures are they pulling on to make that case? It tends to rely a lot on Romans and like Galatians type stuff, like the stuff about the law 
and the justification language, anything Mm -hmm. very legal focused. And this is a distinction because sometimes you'll hear people sort of conflate satisfaction and penal substitution. Mm -hmm. And they are similar in some ways, but there's a big distinction in that in the satisfaction theory, God needs to to fix the situation and reestablish order significantly for the good of the universe. Like things will fall apart if he doesn't do this. Right. Whereas in penal substitution, God wants to punish here. God wants to, like his wrath must be vented. It's not, like there's, there's a certain like almost need on God's behalf to punish this sin. And he has an anger that he does not have in the satisfaction theory. Yeah, that is really interesting. Before we get to that anger, let's talk benefits. I want to lead with one, see what you think. I have attended a Reformed church for 10 years now, and uh, I don't consider myself theologically Reformed. I'm not Calvinistic. But one of the things that I hear from my friends at our church, they one thing they love about this is like, there's nothing I could have done. There's nothing mm. I did do. It's really not up to my own will or mm-hmm. performance. Like God's grace is a free gift. Jesus completely on Jesus's own initiative decides to step into my place. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, I think that's, there's a, there's a psychologically healthy thing involved in that, right? Like we mm-hmm. are in fact, totally finite beings. If we don't eat for 36 hours, we'll, we'll hate everything in the world. I mean, like we think our egos tell us that we have control, but we really don't have control. And so there's a, there's a, there's a natural truth in that. I think that's a benefit. What do you think that's a benefit? Yeah, I I can see that. I think it's not as exclusive to penal substitution as people often think. That is what I often respond with. Yeah. I mean, I think another benefit is the sense of certainty. See, Um, I don't know if I think that's a benefit. That's interesting. Why do you think that's a benefit? I think it's at least experienced as a benefit. But the sense of certainty of, in the sense of like, you know, neither height nor depth nor that whole long list. Confidence, yeah. Yeah, like like the justification is accomplished, like it's final in a legal sense, like nothing can undo this, nothing can snatch us out of God's hand, that sort of thing. I think that's a positive. Yeah, and I'll admit a deficiency in my own way of thinking about this stuff. My assurance that God loves me comes through private prayer practice primarily. That was a lot of of peas. And if I'm talking to someone who hasn't had that experience, they need some other way to be confident that God loves them because I, I am also confident that God loves them. And so I, I do have to think about this more of like, because I don't struggle with that issue because of just the way that I think that God has shown up in my prayer life, that is less of a need for me, but I don't really have an answer. And so perhaps this answers that for some people who haven't had that experience or maybe if they had, I'm not sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does make sense. And I also think just at like a, a cultural level, the, the legal model makes sense to us. Like it's easy to understand that that's how things would operate. Yeah, it's easy to put it into a tract, you know, for spiritual laws, kind of a tract mm-hmm. that you can hand out and mass produce. There's a drawback, though, which is, is God really like a legally exact kind of like almost a angry dad? Yeah. You know, like that, that seems like an obvious drawback. And as much as it makes Jesus very appealing and very sympathetic and right. someone that you can, you know, pray to and talk to, it makes God the Father and, and thus by extension sort of, you know, the whole Godhead really terrifying. <laughs> um, like a, God is in a real sense 
against us until reconciliation is accomplished. Whereas with Christus Victor, God is for us even before the reconciliation has happened. And that's a big difference. Wow. You might even make a psychological argument there too and say, it's a little too psychologically convenient that once Jesus, my defense attorney, has taken my spot, I am definitively in the in-group and there is a definitive out-group. And you might just be really skeptical of that. Like, that's just too easy for us to believe and too destructive to believe. I think it's also, well, it's very good at highlighting the destruction of our sin at an individual level. It does not do such a good job at drawing attention to sin at any larger structural level. Yeah. It very much focuses on how we are sinners, but much less on how we are sinned against and and what that means and, and how God is dealing with that also. We should always be careful to psychoanalyze an entire culture, but <laughs> America being the most individualized culture in the history of the world, it maybe wouldn't be surprising that this would become the atonement theory of choice. Mm-hmm. And then this is the atonement theory that comes up, you know, as the enlightenment is happening and then we're getting this new focus on individual rights and, you know, all of which can be are very good things in a lot of ways, but yeah. it doesn't mean you don't lose something with this. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk about some applications. Obviously, we, we've talked about a couple. There's the tracts. There's mm-hmm. kind of, this is the basics of the gospel message. A lot of times mm-hmm. people will say, are there healthier in your mind ways that this is applied? Are you familiar with Carmen and his courtroom video? I'm familiar with Carmen. I Thankfully, yeah. my parents did not force me to listen to Christian music. So I never got <laughs> into Carmen because um, I never had to. I was briefly into it. I mean, we're talking like third grade or something, like yeah. quite young. Yeah. Um, but he has a video where it's basically a dramatization of penal substitution. And he's got the courtroom going on. And Carmen himself plays all the parts. Like he's God the Father. <laughs> he's Jesus. He's also Satan. He's all the parts. I can believe um, that. Oh, sorry. And he does, yeah. he does, he does the whole thing. So yeah, I, I very much grew up with this. And so it's, it's difficult for me to say like, you know, is there a, like a good and healthy expression of penal substitution? Because like for me personally, coming out of this and, and learning about other atonement theories and embracing Christus Victor has been like huge for my own faith and my own growth. And so the idea of going back to that and, and thinking about like, could it be good is very difficult. Well, let's just say Tim Keller believes in penal substitution atonement. And he seems like a pretty great guy. Helps a lot of people. He does seem like a good guy. Like, I don't think that believing in penal substitution makes you a bad Christian or I don't right. think it, you know, like it, that's like the, the death knell for any chance that, that you're going to be a, a good theologian. I think it's wrong. I don't think it's a great way to talk about this, but lots of people that I admire and have known or have read their works are, are firmly in this camp. Yeah. And I know that there are hundreds of people that listen to this podcast who hold that view yeah. And still listen to me talk and rip it <laughs> apart right now, listening to us. So obviously it's a part of the lives of a bunch of healthy and wonderful people. So moving on to the final one. So those four are in your book. And I asked if we could bring in a fifth, which is a more modern view. And it's it's maybe like less of a 
what we might call an ontological view. It's, it's less of a view about something really being accomplished. It's more a kind of a atonement theory that is like a, a metaphor for understanding what God is trying to say to humans. In and a lot th- of ways, I think it's close to moral exemplar. Not, okay. And I'll let you explain it and then say more on that. But in, in some ways, I think that moral exemplar sort of is a, a positive object lesson, God giving us a positive lesson, whereas this is God giving us sort of a negative object lesson. Yeah. And, and the theory we're talking about here is scapegoat theory. René Girard is the thinker most associated uh, with this. And do you want me to explain it or do you want to explain it? Why don't you explain it? Okay. I think so you know more about this than I do. <laughs> I'm no scapegoat theory expert, but it's something like this. Human beings, when they get into groups, will naturally, because of whatever forces, they will end up having collective guilt for wrong things that they have done, both collectively as an, and as an individual. They will make in-groups and out-groups, and they will find some person or some group of persons that will take the blame for everyone's collective shared fault. So, for instance, you might uh, blame immigrants for some period. Then you might blame Jews for a while. Then you might blame I witches don't know. and burn them. Witches, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the word scapegoat comes from, I believe, it's in Leviticus, mm-hmm. in the priestly tradition in the Torah. There is a practice once a year on the Day of Atonement. So this is why this is an atonement theory. There are two goats, goat or sheep or whatever. One of them is sacrificed on the altar to Yahweh, and the other one is ceremonially laid. The sin gets laid on this animal, and it is sent out into the desert to carry the sins of the people. So that's kind of like a positive scapegoating where you just put it on an animal instead of putting it on a person. And the idea that Gerard had was Christ as the sacrificial lamb, and that's probably the scriptural element is sort of the lamb of God that was slain some of the stuff in Isaiah is Jesus is the final scapegoat. And Jesus shows us that we never need to scapegoat ever again. So these psychological impulses that we have, especially as groups to demonize the other, these can be shown to be false narratives by Christ's example. Did I, did I do okay? Yeah, no, I mean, insofar as my understanding goes, that sounded great. (laughs) So either that's right or we're both wrong. (laughs) So what do you think? I mean, any other scriptures I'm not thinking of besides sort of lamb that was slain type stuff? No, I I think those are the obvious ones. I think also you can draw on some of the, especially Jesus's teachings about violence and and rejecting violence. Yeah. You know, Gerard wants to to conclude that God is showing us to reject violence as a solution to our, our problems that we're developing in our community. And that's sharply distinct from penal substitutionary atonement, where like, or satisfaction theory where, no, the violence is the answer on Jesus is the solution. It is the main sort of lived part of that solution. It's the experienced part. Whereas scapegoat would say, no, 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 like I'm taking that violence for you. You never need to be violent again. So what are the benefits besides what we've already said? Anything else we haven't mentioned? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I think in some ways it's similar to moral exemplar in that it does get at like an important thing that I think the cross, the atonement does demonstrate to us. Like, just as I think moral exemplar is right, that it does demonstrate God's love. I think it also does demonstrate that that violence doesn't work and that it's not the solution to our problems and that we should not be, you know, scapegoating people. 
in a similar way, though, I would say, like, for me, I don't know that it's enough on its own. I was just going to say, same, um, same insufficiency of moral exemplar. Yeah. It's just, it's not the whole story. Right. Important aspect of the story. Love the rejection of violence stuff, but maybe not enough on its own. So in terms of application in an individual life, it, it might be uh, a Christian recognizing, ah, this group is being othered. This person is being othered. And Christ was the final other. There are no others left. We are all one body. I need to reject this othering. Anything else you want to add application-wise? I mean, I think that's the big one and the one, as, as far as I know, that like Gerard talked about a lot of like once the scapegoat sort of mechanism has been revealed, well, you can't, you can't do it anymore if you realize you're just blaming an innocent person or group for your problems. Yeah. And so maybe people who would have emphasized this, it's obviously, it's not old enough to be adopted by any particular denomination, but this is big among a lot of mainline liberal Protestants Mm -hmm. and certainly people in the liberation theology type of camp would, would also find this language very consonant with their overall project, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we got through the theories. Here is a question. I listened to a talk once by Metropolitan Callistos Ware. He is uh, a Metropolitan, which is sort of like a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church. He's British. He's their Metropolitan of, of the UK or whatever. And he gave a talk about atonement. And he went through seven theories, actually, and described them briefly. And then at the end, he said, I'm Orthodox, and we say yes to all seven. Now, it sounds like you're going to take a bit of umbrage with that. How would you respond to Ware's suggestion that we can just, they're all metaphors. We can take all the metaphors at once. We don't need to privilege uh, necessarily one over the other. Yeah, it's interesting. I've read one of Ware's books, The Orthodox Way, which is great. And I strongly recommend it. And it's been a few years now, but my recollection is that he mostly talks in language that would be certain like various christus victor motifs ah so he you think he's maybe uh emphasizing the unity a bit more than his actual writing would suggest maybe it's as hard to say like i said you know it's it's been a while since i've read that sure. so I, I don't want to be unfair but but certainly the idea that we can accept yeah. more than one we've talked about how yeah. christus victor moral exemplar and scapegoat are all, pr- kind of of a piece they there's really no reason that one would force you to reject the other at least with those three I think you can accept more than one, especially in terms of like adding moral exemplar or scapegoat onto one of the other theories. Where I think you run into a wall in saying, you know, they're all just metaphors and we can use all of them, is particularly in the question of what is the obstacle to reconciliation and who wants Jesus to die. What is the obstacle Um, and who wants Jesus to die? I love those questions. And those make a big difference, and you're getting very different answers. In penal substitution, you know, the obstacle to reconciliation is significantly God the Father. Like, God has to vent this wrath. He has to uphold his law and his justice. And so God, in in a sense, wants like he wants to punish someone. And if it's going to be Jesus in that sense, you know, God wants Jesus to, to die. That is not the answer that you get, say, from Christus Victor. There. It is evil and the devil that wants Jesus to die, like God's enemy is not God. And the obstacle to reconciliation, again, is, is you know, our enslavement to evil and, and evil itself. And so one story that says that the obstacle here is God and another story here that says the obstacle is God's enemies, I don't see how you can mesh those and just say, 
you know, they're both sort of getting at the same truth because they're, they're telling very, very different stories and I, I can't get them to fit together. The gauntlet has been thrown down. You heard it here first. <laughs> Bonnie and Kalistos are going <laughs> to, are going to throw down and duke this out. No, but that's a really interesting point. I, can we spend a second on, I love Christus Victor, but I'm really worried about positing like the devil as like a serious actor in this mm-hmm. whole thing, unless we want to really de-anthropomorphize the devil, which I'm I'm quite happy to do. And which I think you can do. Okay. So you think if I if I need to go, devil's not a being. Evil forces are basically just like all the things that harm people and they can congeal into forces that actually act on individuals. I do believe that. I think we mm-hmm. see that with xenophobia. We see it in the Third Reich before Hitler. We, we see it all kinds of places. Does all of it still work if I don't want to talk about a literal Satan? I think it does. I mean, certainly you're not going to find, you know, say like the early fathers quite as easily quotable. Um, (laughs) I can live with that. But I think the crucial aspect is not, you know, is there a personal being who leads opposition to God and who we call Satan? The crucial aspect is like, are there these forces of evil, whatever that looks like, involving whatever sort of level of spiritual being we don't super know, right? Yeah. Like it's humans, maybe there's some non-corporeal element. Like, you know, even even if you do have a more personal conception of like evil with some sort of like Satan or something like that, it's not like we have a lot of details on this. Right. But the point is that there's a side that is against God and that humanity has joined that side and God is trying to get us back from that. And you can have that with or without a, a, a personal being. One other question on sort of these theories in general. I have heard a distinction recently that I found really helpful when talking about atonement theories. And I'm, I'm trying to bring it up in, in any conversation about them. Some people and or some of the models view the atonement primarily as like having accomplished something. We might call these like ontological in the philosophical terminology atonement theories like Christ died and was raised and there were gravity waves throughout the universe. Like something changed. It accomplished something. Another way of thinking about them and, and this would work more than it does, you know, for some theories than other is that the atonement primarily reveals something true about God. What do you think about that distinction? First of all, I mean, I would say that, like moral exemplar and the scapegoat theory definitely tend more towards the revelation side. Yeah. And the other three more towards the accomplishment side. Yeah. And for me, I think that's part of what I find lacking in moral exemplar and scapegoat on their own, that I I want there to be. And I think there is something being accomplished. That said, I would also say that all of them, any atonement theory is going to be painting a picture of what's, what God is like, even if that's less of its primary focus in the way that it is for some. You might say they all reveal, but they don't all necessarily accomplish. Yeah, I think that's fair. And some, you know, maybe do reveal more than others or, or yeah, you know, give more attention to revealing. But yeah. Here's my worry about accomplishment theories versus revealing theories. And this came up in uh, episode three of the show when we were talking about aliens and extraterrestrial intelligence, which, by the way, we're not I don't mean like Area 51 and UFOs. I mean, like just the vastness of the universe and the 
sort of depending on how you think of it, likelihood that there are other creatures somewhere that God created and that God communicates with in a similar way that God communicates with us. It seems like we don't want to say something happened with the atonement that like didn't happen in Andromeda Galaxy or or something like that. Yeah. We, we don't want a cosmological event when something happened on Earth in the Milky Way. That seems weird. So I would say that the accomplishment is very much about, and whatever accomplishment you think that is, is very much about humanity and Earth. You know, and I don't want to say just humanity in that you have, I think it says, is it Romans 8, the, the passage about all of creation is groaning for restoration. And so I, I, I do think, you know, all of Earth is a part of that. But, I mean, humanity is, you know, sort of the core species that God is dealing with, or the primary focus of the redemption. And so if there is other life elsewhere in the universe, they're, they're not subject to the same initial problem that God comes to deal with with us. And so maybe they have a different atonement. I don't know. Maybe they never needed an atonement. Maybe they didn't break away from God. Yeah, that's kind of the C.S. Lewis view yeah, yeah, from the Space Trilogy. Yeah, personally, I would say if there is other life, like on another planet, they have their own deal going on. Oh, that's and it interesting. would be a separate. Like, I think that if God yeah. had to do an atonement with them, it would be consonant in many important ways to the atonement that he did with us. Like, he would have the same character, right? So he would atone and he, he would do the atonement in similar ways because it would be coming from the same God. But it wouldn't necessarily be the same atonement and it wouldn't necessarily be affected by what Jesus did on earth. So I have one more question and, and maybe a follow up. This is from one of my patrons and my, my buddy, Evan. He asks this, how do you disagree and yet remain in community with someone over atonement theories? Most penal substitutionary atonement proponents will question your salvation if you believe anything else, despite the broader historical church beliefs. Assu- he says, assuming yeah. you even get that far. <laughs> I would say two things. One is that in many churches, and in my observation at least, you're already mixing atonement theories. You might not realize it because you probably, like, realistically, a lot of Christians don't know that there's such a thing as atonement theory right. and that there's different ways to answer these questions. And so, you know, I've I've been in services where one hymn is very penal substitution, and then you have another hymn, and it's Christus Victor, and they're just right. side by side, and nobody notices anything. When there is, though, that explicit disagreement, I mean— Unless they're like actively trying to excommunicate you, what what are they going to do, right? Like if you're in a congregation where some significant portion or the majority disagrees with you on atonement theory, but you're, you know, happy to stay there and be in that community for whatever other reasons and they're not going to kick you out, well, then you're you're doing it. You're coexisting already. And I think I think there's a a healthy aspect of that in that if you go to church with someone for 10, 20 years and you know that they're super wrong on atonement theory, but, you know, they're part of your community and they don't actually seem too heretical. And, you know, I think that can help just sort of that, that day-to-day exposure can help you come to the realization that, hey, maybe this isn't a make or break issue for our faith. Yeah. And I mean, the the hymns idea is a good idea. Now, you, you could imagine maybe a super reformed church that's got a tight lock on which hymns they sing, but probably most of these churches you can find hymns and you could just lovingly point out to someone like, look, this is, this we're is the Christmas victory. Yeah. 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 We're yeah. already mixing this up. And 
So one metaphor need not control all the other metaphors. So I have a follow-up question to Evan's question. In your understanding, is there a similar phenomenon with other atonement theories? Or is it only penal substitution where for certain kinds of Christians, it has become so dominant that other ones are seen as like less than the gospel? That's hard to say. I certainly haven't seen so many explicit statements as you see with penal substitution. Yeah, you get these like church belief statements that are like incredibly technical about this language. Yeah. There was a controversy and it was over a hymn a few years ago. It's that one, and on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In Christ alone, I was just going to ask, yeah. Yeah, some Presbyterian group or somebody wanted to change that to, like, you know, the grace of God was demonstrated or something. The love of God was magnified is how I used to lead that song when I was a worship leader. And it was a huge deal because people were saying, like, no, you're changing, like, that's not the gospel anymore. I have not personally, at least, observed the same sort of like, this theory is the gospel from other people, which is interesting that, for especially for such a recent theory, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that it's engendered that very absolute defense. Well, this is a big question, so I'm sorry it's the last one, and it's not necessarily your area of expertise, but what do you think explains that? How did it come to be that that 500-year-old theory got so much dominance within that particular Christian subculture? I mean, for a a long time, I think it was, you know, sort of the the primary Protestant perspective. And so if you're you're not a Catholic, of course, this is what you're going to hold. Maybe just a natural consequence of it being the majority view in a particular circumscribed area. That and also just the way that we have often forgotten that there are different viewpoints on this. You know, I think for, for almost every Hence other your issue. Book. Yes. But for almost every other issue in my book, I think people are at least aware that a debate exists. That and is And for this one, we, we don't always know. Like, we just mix yeah. up the metaphors. And I think it's because it is so central, we sort of assume there's, there's just one way. Wow. That is, that's so good. And that's a great place to end. You had these questions at the end of your chapter. I'm going to put them in the show notes. So if anybody wants to share this episode with a friend or family member or a pastor, these would be really fun questions to ask each other and sort of get a conversation going. I'm going to just read them here so I can make the pitch. What theory of the atonement is most familiar to you? Which one did your Sunday school teachers tell you? If you had Sunday school teachers, Bonnie, (laughs) let's not assume. Which do you find most appealing and why? Most convincing and why? If those aren't the same, why? How would you explain to someone totally unfamiliar with Christianity how Jesus dying means that we can be saved? I love that question. That's a great question. It's harder question. than you might think. That one is really hard. Yeah. And then which theory makes the most sense in our current culture? And that's interesting because you could either say that's good. Like you were saying, satisfaction made a lot of sense in 1050 AD. That's a good thing. But you might also say, ah, is our culture maybe getting something wrong here? Should we control for the fact that this one makes the most sense in our culture, which is another way to take that. So I think these questions are great. They they could get some really interesting group or individual conversations going. So those are in the show notes. Bonnie, if people want to be in touch and read your stuff or whatever, obviously they should go pick up A Flexible Faith. That'll be linked in the notes. But you have a blog as well? I do. I have, I'm at bonniechristian.com and that's Christian with a K, K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. 
the book is actually on sale on Amazon right now for like a third off sticker price. So that's nice. nice. I think it's like 1050 or something at the moment. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm, you can find these links on my website also, but I have a, a Facebook page and I'm on Twitter, both as Bonnie Christian. And the best part is this is not the only time we're going to have a conversation like this because your book is tailor-made for this podcast. So sometime in the future on some other topic, we will have you back to do another one of these running the table on the various options episodes. Yeah, that sounds great. Have you uh, have you picked a second topic yet? No. I've asked listeners for a lot of questions, and I've kind of collated their responses. So I'm going to check that against the book contents and nice. uh, pick one based on that, but I haven't done it yet. But that I'm very excited. Good. And man, I love the book. Guys, really, it's such an incredible resource. It's a, It's a really a resource. You don't have to read it straight through. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like my intention is that it's readable enough that you can go straight through, but you also can just like pick it up and go to the five chapters that have questions that are really pressing for you. Yeah. I mean, it's like an incredible resource for a pastor or anybody sort of engaged in any kind of theological or pastoral work. So anyway, Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. This was a nice, long, robust conversation, (laughs) but I feel like we really got through a lot of a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you guys for listening. A couple announcements here at the end. I have joined the Open and Relational Theology Reading Group with Trip Fuller and Thomas J. Ord, the theologian. It's going to be awesome. It's it's all online. It's pay what you want. They're going through six of the main questions that come up when we think about open and relational theology. Open means the future is open. God does not determine the future. Relational means God is in some real sense affected by our decisions and our relationship with God. It's the type of theology that I tend to find myself subscribing to. I'm not trying to convert you to that view, but if you're interested in it, this is like a pretty awesome opportunity to read through some really important texts and topics in this world with two people who understand this world very well with full access to them. So pay what you want. It's online. It's like six weeks long. I'll be there. Join me if you want. There's a link to this in the show notes. Also, February 15th and 17th, 15th to 17th, I will be at the Bad Christian Conference in Dallas, Texas. There is a link in the show notes there as well. There's also links to Bonnie's book, A Flexible Faith, which I cannot recommend highly enough, and that image of concentric circles that I mentioned in the introduction And of course, all the usual stuff here, join the Patreon for two bonus episodes every month, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. And there is that patron-only Facebook group, which is really up and going now, and I'm having a lot of fun. I'm interacting with people pretty much daily on there. Once you're a patron, just Google You Have Permission on Facebook and request admission to the group. Uh, head to youhavepermissionpod.com for anything else you might want to know. Email me. Let me know what you're thinking, what you want to hear, questions you have. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, we'll see you next week.